Yes. Making a reveal. Making a reveal. Hello and welcome to the 29th episode of Rank and Review. And this week my guest is... Damien Bartlett. And Damien, what are we discussing this week? We're discussing vampires! <laughs> uh, yes, your host and running comedian Larry Parsons and Damien Bartlett are going to discuss Bloodsuckers. And in true Rank and Review fashion, there will be spoilers. Oh, and there so will nice. be course language. Oh, uh, quite likely. Would you like to shake some out now just to get out of your system? Fuck! Jesus! Cunt! Liquors! Very Sounds nice. good. I hope you can sit back and relax and enjoy this episode enjoy. of Rank and Review. So, uh, Damien Bartlett, uh, my goodness, it, it has been so long since we've actually hung out. We are like gabbed for an hour before we even start recording this, but that's awesome. It's great to catch up with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you are now participating in episode 29 wow. of Rank and Review. That's exciting. And it's, it's interesting that we've got this far into the show and we haven't really just done an episode dedicated to vampires. Are you kidding me? We haven't done like Am that. I breaking your vampire cherry? <laughs> you are. My cherry is being <laughs> broken right so now. So exciting. <laughs> I promise to be gentle. Um, I remember, well, we went to school together, of course, but uh, oh, for yes. me, Damien, you'll always be my drug dealer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I cast you in, in The Happy Thief. That's my right. drug dealer. And I was and Eugene. You were Eugene, the drug dealer. And uh, I remember everybody thought it was kind of a weird choice that I was casting you against type or whatnot, but I totally bought you as a drug dealer. I don't know if that's a compliment or not, but I, I would believe you. Oh, no, no. I, I, I played that quirky. I think if I recall really carefully... One of the lines was, I'm looking at Paxton and uh, Kevin Stiller, and they're like, oh, we were in the scene, they were all baked out of their minds, and I'm like, hey guys, do you got anything to do tomorrow? And they're like, no man, why? I'm like, cool! Now where did I put that acid? And lights fall to And everyone in the audience lost their shit. It was great. Um, so yes, we are, we have a history in the theater community together, you and I, and, uh, I, I wrestled you down and got you to, to agree to do this podcast, and it you was, chose... It was hard, it was yeah. so hard, my rubber elbows just caved. Yeah. You chose vampires, though, I, would, I didn't vampires! even flip this up on you. Uh, what is it about vampires that you find so appealing? You're, you say you are horrified by zombies, but you love vampires. Okay, I'll tell you about my vampire, uh, love. It started, like, at a very young age. My mom... Uh, decided uh, to show me one of the black and white Draculas, mm -hmm. and she thought, "Oh, it'll be fine. It'll be okay." And Nothing I don't know. Old is scary. Nothing old is scary, <laughs> and I'm five years old, and I'm absolutely terrified out of my mind. I'm like, "Put me to bed, no!" And then, like, I don't know what happened, but some gestalt experience, like fetus, came up, and years later, I was like, "Vampires, woo!" 
Oh, even if it was a terrible vampire movie, I was a whore. I was in. Yeah, well, you're not alone. It does seem to have, be a, a license to print money. If you have some kind of vampire <laughs> permutation to your film, be it comedy or otherwise, uh-huh. uh, the people will come. <laughs> That's um, true. I've kind of been, like, sacked out of the Anne Rice sort of Twilight vampires. Holy where they're shit. all, like, romantic and soft. I like toothy, mean, scary vampires myself. Yes, I agree. Um, the, you know... I think that traditionally, though, what, what the simple appeal is, and, and I'm a simple man, is that vampires are the quintessential marriage of sex and violence. Oh, yes, they and, are. And that's the horror genre, really. It's the forbidden fruit. Uh-huh. It's, it's looking at stuff that you, uh, you know, maybe aren't supposed to or that will make you uncomfortable to. And uh, the vampires live in that world. And uh-huh. that is, like it or no, part of their appeal. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I think it was well put in an episode of Community when... Uh, they they distill the Twilight books to all men are monsters. <laughs> You're choosing between a werewolf and a vampire, but either way, it's a monster. Oh man! See, no, you don't. Oh God! You know the funny thing is, I actually did. I went to the very first Twilight movie because, I, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm a whore. It's like vampire sounds good, and I hadn't read the books. I had no idea about the books. I went in, and I was like, "This isn't too bad. It's kind of okay." Because they had to, and I thought maybe I'll read the books. And I'm like, "What have I done?" <laughs> so I, I had to read the books, and about I got to the fourth book, and I, the last hundred pages was really painful. Mostly because every page I was punching my nuts just to work my way through because of how it's like women are just like, I'm just going to lie here and wait for my super sparkly bitch boyfriend to take care of business. And I'm like, oh my God, you could have had a super abtastic boyfriend. Of a so who off. was it that had the gun to your head forcing you to finish reading this? Oh, it was me. God, it was me. But the thing is, is that when I, I'm somebody who has to get something done, I can't just leave things hanging. So I, but yeah, so like I said, I'm a whore. I'll just watch it. But. As far as like literature, I mean, I'm, I'm not too deep into it. I, I read Bram Stoker's Dracula, which mm. is a fairly reserved piece in a lot of ways. Oh, considering yeah. all the spectacle that is treated with typically. And, um, you know, of course my Stephen King thing, uh, Salem's Lot. And we're going to talk about the night flyer a little mm-hmm. bit later on. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, I read the first two of the Anne Rice Vampire Chronicles, I believe. Interview with a Vampire and the Vampire Lestat. I never and actually read those. I, I, I didn't despise them necessarily, but I didn't like them enough to keep reading. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's something about the eternal vampire feeling sorry for himself playing in a rock band that I just was like... So boring. <laughs> if you feel bad about your existence, then stop killing people to exist. I just can't <laughs> side with you here. I cannot feel your pathos. You are not a sympathetic character. Um, the selection of zombie movies, or zombie movies, pardon my tongue, the selection of vampire movies that uh, I've picked here, I think for the most part are fairly strong choices. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, but they are not typically the overly romanticized version. With the exception of the 70s take on, on Dracula, <laughs> I think that for the most part, vampires are portrayed as monsters here. Oh. And uh, that's how I like them. Yeah, yeah, I'm a, I agree with you. Um, I, I, I don't... There was a wonderful, hilarious um, Attack of the Show episode where they were mocking Twilight horribly, and then you see Kevin, the host of the show, come up behind and stab the Edward Cullen character behind, and his uh, companion, I can't remember her name, and they're just killing Luke Cullen. And they're like, silly, you don't date vampires, you kill them! Indeed. Well, uh, it's killer be killed in this state. Nom, um, nom, nom. 
I'm just going to list off the movies we're going to look at this, this episode. Um, we have, I think, a pretty fantastic uh, foreign film called Let the Right One In. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have an adaptation of Stephen King's short story uh, called The Night Flyer. Uh, Shadow of the Vampire, which concerns the making of uh, Nosferatu, the silent film that uh, was telling the Dracula story, although they didn't have the rights, so they were sort of making it their own. Um, the 1970s version of Dracula from John Badham and starring Frank Langella. Um, Catherine Bigelow, who has since come up and recently won Best Picture for The Hurt Locker, directed Near Dark, a 1980s very stylized vampire movie. Oh, yeah. And last but not least, uh, a fairly recent but uh, well-respected vampire apocalypse movie called Stakeland. Um, did you find this an easy watch? Had you seen most of these before? Or I had you? seen half of these films. I had seen Let the Right What In, Shadow of the Vampire, and Near Dark. And I had watched the first five minutes of Stakeland before watching it fully, and I'll, I'll talk about why it ended <laughs> up just ready. being the first five minutes. I think I might know. Yeah. Well, shall we uh, duck in then? <laughs> Let us duck in and get it happening. <laughs> Okay, um, this is a Swedish film called Let the Right One In. It's based off of a novel and um, it concerns a little boy who is tormented and bullied by uh, the kids in his neighborhood and at school mm-hmm. and who lives a very solitary, fairly somber life. In fact, you kind of get the feeling like this he's on a, a pretty spooky precipice because yeah. he could be turning really sour. He could be breaking bad here. <laughs> he yeah. Could, he could be actually being made into some kind of a sociopath. Yeah, actually. But happily, or not happily, depending happily. on how you choose to interpret it, he meets a mysterious girl who moves in next door, who doesn't seem to be affected by the cold, who seems to have strength beyond any 12-year-old girls, and who manages to instill in him a sense of self-worth and uh, inspires him to sort of defend himself and, and find his own sort of strength. Mm-hmm. This is good for him, but catastrophic for everyone around him. Yeah. Such are the events told in Let the Right One In, what'd you think? I, uh, now I had seen this one before, and... Um... I really, really did enjoy this film. Uh, it's a, it's not your necessarily super fast-moving movie, um, but what I liked is that it takes its time in the storytelling, and the characters are given their full birth of being able to sort of express themselves. You meet Oscar, and you get the sense that his mom is busy. I mean, she's a mom, but it's always like a, you know, kind of... Oscar, stop being... Uh, I have a busy life somewhere else. She's like licking her own wounds so extensively mm-hmm. that she's sort of maybe not... Ignoring her son might be pushing it, but yeah. she's not paying as much attention to him as she could. Yeah. And I don't think recognizing the hurt that he is suffering. That he is going through. Yeah. And you can see that later, just a little later on in the film, he, he has a father 
Um, and his father has moved on in his own way. Yeah. Um, and he loves his father. Like, it's, it's beautifully expressed. Like, I just, like, one of the moments when you see him with his dad and just, like, hanging out and then... Uh, and then you're finding out that he's moving on in his own way and, and that Oscar doesn't really have a place in his life so anymore. much anymore. And so... Oscar needs to be needed by someone. Yeah, he really does. And he just... And right from the get-go, you know that something's up. Like, the, like he's been bullied for like quite some time. I think that it's interesting that they portray the bullying at school in such a frank and frankly real way. Speaking yeah. of somebody who was bullied when I was a kid, I, I do feel like it's sugar-coated. I do feel like it's they push the kid down, they say something funny, and they leave. But in reality, it gets really ugly. It gets you know? nasty. And they throw his clothes in the urinal and, and piss on him and then make him walk home in it. Yeah. You know, they they humiliate him and they do as much psychological as well as physical damage as they can on him. And they do it with glee. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, it's disturbing. Yeah. Because I recognize it as truthful. <laughs> yeah. I, I have seen that side to children and uh, it's very rare that a movie captures that. It's as horrifying as when we get into the supernatural stuff, some of the bullies in it. Yeah. Um, this is a film in which children are killed. And... Mm -hmm. I'm kind of indifferent about some <laughs> when it by the time it happens. I mean, it's not that I want any of these kids dead, but they have established themselves as such villains <laughs> that uh, I don't necessarily pity them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like the thing. Uh, the thing of the matter is, is that it, with all bullying, if taken too far, the other side of the story is, is that the victim gets killed, right? Or the victim becomes corrupted, right? Right. The cycle of violence. The only way to not feel like a victim is to. Like, they'll always say, just go stand up to that bully. Go punch that bully in the nose. Break his nose. And then your bullying problems will be over. No, because the nature of bullies is that they're cowards. So yeah. it's going to be six of them against you by yourself. That scenario is not going to play out. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and even, like, I mean, there was a point, if you don't mind, if I sort of jumping around at points in the film... Uh, he does actually stand up to the bullies, like, uh, and it's horrifying. And it's it's really bad because it just escalates, and just then that sort of cowardice nature. It's like, oh yeah, you 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 hit me, I'm gonna go get my scary big brother yeah. who is got less compassion than I do. And you see where that bully came from in that respect. The biggest bully that Oscar suffers, he himself has a bully in his older brother that he lives in terror of. Yeah. And in a way, he gets his power from torturing Oscar because his own power has been stolen by his brother. Yeah. Um, like I said, all of this is very realistically handled and the Oscar is stabbing a tree viciously with a knife. Right at the beginning. Uh, right at the beginning of the movie, yeah. pretending it's his bully, you know, trying to like vent, vent, vent. Yeah. And this girl sees him and recognizes something in him. Yeah. I think one of the most fascinating things about this movie is considering the motivations of this young vampire. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and it's not really named how old she is, but I get the she sense... She says she's 12, but she's been 12 for a really, really long, long time. time. And I, the feeling I also get is that she has gone through generations of keepers. And this is the beginning of her next. Of yeah. her next keeper. And so that, was, that in itself is a really open-ended sort of story that never quite gets answered, but just left to your imagination. 
it's a rescue and a reprieve from this horrible life of powerlessness that he's suffering that she offers him. Yeah. And she never offers it to him. She never says, this is what you're going to do. But she sets the path for him. Yeah. Her watcher, the guy who's been looking after her, is getting old and sloppy in his work. Yeah. And it's time to replace him. And I think the interesting thing is, is that that will be Oscar's fate, presumably. One day, Oscar will get too old to do the job efficiently, and she will befriend some other sad little boy, and the whole cycle will begin again. And, and when looked at through that prism, is it a happy ending to this movie? <laughs> it's what Oscar wants. Yeah. And it maybe is better than Oscar growing up to become a little sociopath. Yeah. But is it a happy ending? Uh, I would say in the interim, in the immediate moment, it is a happy ending. Mm. It's a happy ending. Because, <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I'm also thinking about what happens immediately after. Um, There's uh, a lot of innocent <clears throat> blood that is spilled in the left and right of this, too. It's not just the bullies and the bad guys who die. No. She needs to feed fairly regularly, and people who are in the wrong place at the wrong time are victims. Yeah, the and townies. People, I call that group the townies. The townies. And people who mean to do good, a police investigator who's trying to, you know, solve the crimes, or someone who's wanting to figure out what yeah. happened to a loved one. They get too nosy, they get close, too close to this fire, and they become another victim in this web. Yeah. What's... All the same, we still like this little vampire for some reason. <laughs> for some reason, she's kind of adorable. Um, <laughs> in, and, but, but utterly terrifying, like... She ends up, like, accidentally making vampires because she had to flee, and yeah. one of the townies is a victim of that. Yeah. And I liked how that sort of... There was just some very interesting dynamics right there. And for a movie that is so sedate and reserved, like you said, which does take its time, when the violence comes, it is shockingly real. Are, are we referring to the very end? Well, there's the ending, but I'm just talking... We've seen, say, for instance, a vampire get struck by sunlight and burst, burst into, into flames. flames which but we've never seen someone who's strapped into a hospital bed. Yeah. And the nurse opens the <laughs> curtains at, and just a, she erupts in flames and starts flailing around. And the nurse also, just for being next to her, is also <laughs> engulfed in flames like... A, uh, or, or the interesting new addition of cats somehow being able to uh, yeah. uh, tell that you're a vampire and attacking. And it was like the cats were like, this is a enemy predator. And we have to kill it. Even at the cost of our own lives, this thing needs to die. This thing needs to die. Kill it a lot. There's a really brutal sequence where this woman's being attacked by a cat. And oh, yeah. <laughs> and the cats are freaking out. And they've latched into her flesh. And they're, like, clawing and biting her. And not, like, gently either. And in a movie, like I say, that has been fairly gentle and, and sedate otherwise, it really jars you in your seat. And like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's, a, there's kind of hints as to what kind of creature... That um, that Ellie is because there's a point where she's in a room with Oscar and the light comes on suddenly and her eyes, um, her pupils were dilated, were kind of cat-like. Just glinted slightly. Yeah, and then it just went back to normal and I was like, hmm. I think one of the <clears throat> more powerful scenes to me too is a little trust game that is played between these two kids. Mm -hmm. Again, if you can call her a kid. Um, where he tests this sort of, you're a vampire, okay, well, prove it. You say you can't come in unless I invite you. 
And that was an interesting piece of mythology that's never really been explored before. It's a real definite thing about vampires. It's in the vampire mythology, absolutely. But in movies, we don't see it that often. No. And she passes the threshold of his door and stands her ground and just starts shaking and trembling and just bleeding out of every orifice. Every orifice. And she stands her ground until he says, you're invited in, you're invited in. It's a trust game. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, <laughs> it's a really interesting scene because for a moment she does put her life entirely in his hands, probably for the first and only moment in her existence. But... That is possible. I don't think that that's happened before. There must be some, you know, just as a thought, Larry, maybe the reason that she trusted him is because she maybe sensed the inner monster in Oscar. Mm -hmm. And so she's like, you're a kindred spirit. And, uh, and he'll be happy with her is the thing. He'll be doing horrible things and at the end of the day become a mass murderer to feed this love. And it's a love that can never really be fully... That darkness will never be filled. Yeah, well, and, and the fact that she will always be 12. And, yeah. and, and he'll be 12 until his next birthday yeah you know and that's going to become a thing and that, that's, that's you know like but he'll always love her and think of her in the same way much like her previous keeper mm -hmm. even to the point of scalding his flesh flesh with acid to slow the police investigation to get her time to yeah. get out of there yeah and when she comes to see him in the hospital willingly offering his throat to her yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> it's a powerful bond that she has with him, but does that bond go both ways? Like, yeah. the way she drops him out of that window seems not necessarily loving, does it? Like, no, it doesn't. It's, it seems it's, it's like, like she like... discarded him and she's on to the next. Yeah, so there's, there's something... There's a fine edge to this movie. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's, it's a little disturbing. Uh, is it all right if I talk about um, the very... The, the point where it hits gear seven and, and just goes crazy. Okay. Um, just talking about that fine line. Um, Oscar is right at the end and the, the bullies have shown up. And spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> Spoilers. I'm going to be talking about this, uh, this particular end scene. And it is one of the best and scariest scenes I've seen done. Because what happens is when... Um, the big older brother bully comes up and he's basically saying, I'm going to hold you underwater and if you don't do it, I'm going to gut you. Yeah. And if you do it, I'll only cut you a little bit. And it's something unreasonable, like five minutes or something? Yeah, I think it was like three minutes, but three no, minutes. nobody can really... Like, Oscar was not in... He's not a physically in-shape kid. Yeah. So He was going to drown Oscar. He was, yeah, he's basically going to drown Oscar and if Oscar tried to surface, he would cut him with a switchblade. Um, and it had been established earlier that Ellie um, watches Oscar uh, while he does his swimming. And so you see the beautiful scene. In, well, not beautiful scene. Sorry. You stay with Oscar's perspective, which yeah. is what's interesting. About yeah. It, and he's underwater. And you see him in the pool. And you see the fist of the bully brother holding him under. And, and you have the sound of what, how you would hear things underwater. All muffled. Yeah. All muffled. And then... You hear... Glass breaks. Glass breaks. Screaming. And then a scream. Yeah. But it's muffled. It's all through the water. And then all of a sudden an arm, boosh, go through. And then the feet dropping yeah. in the water. And kicking as they're being dragged across the surface of the water. On the surface of the water. And just more screaming. And then, boosh, the head going in the water. Yeah. And then the crunch. And then the suddenly the bully's arm drifts by. Yeah. 
and Oscar surfaces and everything is silent and all of his bullies are dead. Dead and dismembered. But the, but the scary and monstrous thing, like referring back to, you know, having after she had dispatched her keeper, is she's looking at Oscar with the same sweet but completely blood-spattered face yeah. of like, you're mine now. Yeah. You're okay, you're safe, no worries. no worries. I just brutally killed these people, that's what happened. That's yeah. This is how we do things. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but at that point, she was protecting him and saying mm-hmm. that she would always protect him. Yeah. Uh, and all he had to do was return the favor. Yeah. And he didn't have anyone protecting him, so he kind of had to say yes. He kind of had to say yes, but it was sort of... There was a point, like, also back in the film when, when Oscar had pretty much given... Where she had said, um, I can't give you, uh, she's like, do I have a chance with you? I'm like, I cannot reciprocate. And he's like, okay, I can, I'm okay with that. And he's like, okay, you have a chance with me, basically, <laughs> because you are willing to be 100% like not um, putting any sort of... Expectation on me. Yeah, yeah. And because of that, then you have the shot, but... Wow. I think this movie's pretty strong. I think it's pretty powerful. They remade it recently to a film called Let Me In. I never saw with, the uh, American Chloe version. Grace Moretz. It's directed by uh, Matt Revis, the same guy who did Cloverfield. Okay. I think it's decent, but I don't think there was much to be fixed in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that like, if you really have that much of a problem while reading subtitles, I guess watch the remake. It, it does the story justice. But I think this is the better of the two films. And I think in its own way, it's kind of a masterpiece. It is amazing. One thing I would recommend, don't watch the watch the, the subtitles. Don't watch the voice dubbing. Agreed. Because it, it abs- something about Plato and the shadow of the shadow of the shadow, it just completely diminishes... The, the the interpretation of the film and the characters. Yeah, we talked about that in <laughs> subtitle scares. I'm a big believer in subtitles. Oh heck yes. Absolutely. Watch the subtitles. Listen to the authentic voice of the actors. It's amazing. Yeah. And definitely do so for watching this right now. Stephen King country here uh, for The Night Flyer. Um, the film is directed by Mark Pavia, and he has not done another film since, and this was in 1997, so I think this is a one and done for him. Um, it's probably the most obscure title out of these this list of movies, Yeah. but um, I think for its sort of low-budget, late-90s fare, it's, it's a fairly solid enough entry. Um, it's interesting especially if you're a Stephen King person, if mm-hmm. you've read a lot of Stephen King and you're into the lore, because um, this character, Richard Dees, who's the central character of the story, has per- has peripherally showed up in other King works, um, most significantly in The Dead Zone. And okay. he's used in The Dead Zone, much to the same purpose he's used in The Night Flyer, only he, he, sort of, he comes out of the other side of Dead Stone a little better than he does in this one. Yep. Uh, um, but he is a he writes for a inside view, which is like the National Enquirer type of bullshit news grocery store rag yeah. that, that you know grandmothers and housewives like to read. And yeah. um, 
he specializes in either taking true crimes and, and exploiting it for print or making shit up about, you know, aliens delivering Easter eggs or, or whatever. <laughs> and the story here, much like his little uh, chapter in The Dead Zone, is what happens when a skeptic is finally confronted with the real deal. Yeah. Uh, I can sort of see this brooding, you know, cynicism developing in, in, you know, writers who can't get taken seriously and who end up, you know, writing for a rag and knowing it, this sort of bitterness mm -hmm. taking over. And they don't sugarcoat his, his character at all. No, <laughs> they don't. Ferrer, who plays this character, seems to really relish making this guy a bastard. He <laughs> is a dick. 100% dick. <laughs> um, but it's well realized. I mean, the portrayal is doing service to the character and the script. This is who this guy is. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's always right. 100% of the time when he does these investigations or make up story, he is the mastermind. Mm -hmm. So he really gets a burr in his ass about this night flyer, yeah. this uh, serial killer, because the ridiculous connections he's making to you know sell the story as a <laughs> you know, vampire serial killer actually add up. Yeah. They actually make sense. And uh, he wants to, I don't know what he wants to get out of this confrontation other than to prove to himself that it's not a vampire. Or, you know, what is his journey? Yeah. Does he want to disprove this? Or does is he actually spending his life looking for this confrontation with evil? Is this um, his albatross? Yeah. The original story can be found in Nightmares and Dreamscapes, which I recommend heartily. Okay. Uh, Damien, what did you think of the Nightmare? Um, I, this one was one that I, um, Stephen King is one of those writers, you either really like him or you really don't like him. Right. And I'm kind of on the side of, I'm not really liking you're him You're so in the much. don't like I'm not, I was like, um, it was, it was interesting. Like, I, at first, when I was watching it, um, I was thinking, oh yeah, this movie was made in the 80s. And then I realized, nope. no, it's made in the 90s. Oh. <laughs> it's oh. obviously fairly low budget. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh. And uh, it was like Miguel Ferrier, who was playing the main character, was uh, hating his life for about an hour and a half. He was just <laughs> like, he just was like, uh, he really did play this character who just didn't like it. Um, I, I was terrified because he was like so driven to chasing this thing. And... I'm like, are you crazy? You are literally walking into the den of a predator and you're armed with a camera? Yes. What are you gonna do? Yeah. Picture him to death? All right. I, but this, the psychology of that is true with everyone. We might not walk into an empty hangar where we are pretty sure there's a vicious murderer with a camera to confront it. But we will make decisions and make choices that basically... It's the equivalent of us designing a trap, laying down in the trap, and then springing the trap, and then going, oh my god, I'm in the trap! Yeah, you I know? know. We bring ourselves, we undo ourselves, and it's something that, that a lot of people have. Rarely does it involve a vampire, but I do think that the, the psychological worm that's being turned here is that, that uh, sometimes we don't do ourselves fav favors with our obsessions. Mm -hmm. Sometimes what we think we want is not what we want. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, let's see, what else do I have here? Just, e, I, I really, uh, uh, I wanted to like it more, Larry. I really did, <laughs> but I right. just didn't. It's, I don't have any happy notes for this one. Oh, I just, okay, let's hear some unhappy notes. Um, it was, it, it just felt like the director, um, 
he it was like he was trying to uh, you know bank for his uh, cocaine retirement fund on this one because this was right around the time of like Stephen King films were like really very popular and there was some very good stuff like it for example scared the ever loving shit out of me and still does yeah well um, get ready because apparently they're gonna do a feature on that soon oh my god <laughs> <laughs> nightmare juice fuel welcome to it um, but. I don't know. It just felt like uh, when they were going through, when the guy was going, like it started out in the beginning and you see this extremely booksome grandmother character. And I mean, like her boobs were like torpedoes. They were just <laughs> leading the way. You, they were like night lights. You'd land planes on them. But, uh, but the night flyer was there busily murdering her husband and she was getting all dolled up to be the next on the, on the, the munchie list. Yeah. Um, and then the guy is, you know, you come from his perspective, and, and we're at the rag, and no one in the, at this newspaper is likable. No one. Nobody. There's, like, the little scrappy Jimmy Olsen character. I don't like her. And then there's the veteran out of lag life. I don't like him. And then there's the editor. I'm a dick, and I'm going to screw you all over. Bam! <laughs> and I'm like, I, I, I want to find sympathy with these characters, but I'm finding no sympathy. I'm nothing likable. Well, and perhaps it's a Stephen King grinding his ass with the tabloid newspapers. That's which, probably uh, true. You know, he does probably doesn't have the biggest feeling of and in his mind you know ending up at a place like that if that's how you're sustaining yourself in your 40s you have not made it as a writer it's true and yeah and that's probably what Stephen King was probably getting at and you know what he succeeded because I absolutely detested and loathed to varying degrees a lot Um, of those characters and as much as it is the destruction of this Richard D's character it is also sort of the birth like he used to call the Jimmy Olsen character yeah this woman who was uh, impressed by Peter D's or Peter D's by Richard Deeds for some reason yeah. because uh, she's been a fan of his bullshit <laughs> work, right? Her goal, her life goal is to be a reporter as cool as this asshole, right? And she gets her wish. Oh, she sure does. <laughs> so, again, the one person that we could have maybe anchored with and liked who ends up, you know... And ends up perpetuating the cycle. Yeah. And, and, in fact, by her... Um, her spin at the end, you know, framing her former icon as the terrible spoiler alert, by the way, boys and girls, spoilers <laughs> yeah. as as supposedly the mass murderer of the Night Flyer. Um, she's basically allowed the Night Flyer to continue his orgy of destruction. I guess we haven't really done real service to the plot here. The basic idea of this vampires is a vampire who lives in the modern age. He has his own, you know, small plane that he will land in small out of the way stretches and he will kill people feed and then fly on to the next post um and all of the sort of romantic ideas of the vampire sort of that's where we see it mm-hmm. not he'll even stay there for a couple of days and refuel and sort of put his feet up and live with these people before he dispatches them yeah um and it's kind of interesting to see them uh you know totally willing to cover his tracks and doing everything they can before he kills them and leaves. Oh, yeah. I thought that was a pretty interesting uh, thing. And for a, a movie that had a lot of sort of almost made-for-TV gloss to it, yeah. when the violence did come, it's actually pretty harsh. <laughs> like, all of a sudden, nope, this is an R-rated movie for a second. And yeah. now back to the goofiness. And all back to the goofy. Uh, and what was funny, one of the things that I found hilarious is that his black Cessna would always leave little... Puddles. Little, Puddle, poop puddles of dirt filled with worms and yeah. maggots and other crawling things of the dark earth. Um, I, I was like, wow, he's got a 
a compost manufactory of epic proportions. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that there were victims mixed into the lot after he was finished with them. It's like, gotta refresh the pile. No. But I think it's an attempt to modernize the vampire in sort of the similar way when we talk about Near Dark is they're trying to transplant sort of a gothic creature to the modern age. Yeah. It's fair enough conceit. You say you're not a big Stephen King fan, and I think that will probably work against you for the movie. I, I certainly don't think this movie is amazing, by the way. I think it's all right. Yeah. Well, it's a different enough take on the on the killer, but if, for instance, you are into the Stephen King, the uh, in qu- Inside View paper is featured in a lot of his books, like Needful Things and Bag of Bones. We'll make reference to that same newspaper. I suspect if I had sort of a little more backfill from like previous stories, like you know the characters overlapping, yeah. it might have I might have been able to go, oh, I have a little bit of resonance with this character. But it's just Stephen like. Stephen King himself has said that there's a connection to a different short story called Popsy, where the Night Flyer himself could be Popsy, which implies that, that he is not a lone vampire. He was, he was on vacation or flying around by himself, but he is part of a family of vampires. Because in that short story, this guy who uh, makes his living kidnapping children, another happy protagonist, Whee! kidnaps the wrong kid from the wrong mall, Whoops. and Daddy comes to hunt his shit down. <laughs> oh, Lordy. <laughs> yeah, and, and and uh, basically, that's the same character here. And if you know that about it, it sort of enriches the experience. Yeah. And, I and see. that's part of the Stephen King thing. If you do dig in and get into Stephen King, uh, you can see references to his other stories within his and that And that's probably the context that I'm missing. Yeah. I just um, didn't quite... Beyond that, it's another vampire movie. Mm-hmm. I've seen way worse. <laughs> like, I have seen I way have. worse. No, and you know what? <laughs> Truly, I have actually seen way terrible, worse things where it's like, you're just like, what am I doing? And it's like, but it's a vampire movie, and as I've mentioned before, I'm a whore. Yeah. I will watch it. <laughs> and leading to that confrontation, when, when Dees does go into that place, he has to, at this point, know he's confronting real evil. And the interesting thing is, is that he chooses to go and confront that evil anyway and damn the consequences. And does he confront it? Because the Night Flyer saved it for the last. <laughs> I love that he practically, he's like, hey, uh, Dees, do you hear this? chorus of shrieks and screams and yeah. horrific things and I was like that sounds like an epic killing and it was <laughs> indeed indeed. and uh, these will go down in infamy and yeah. uh, the Jimmy Olsen character will take his place yeah. and presumably be a terrible person until the fateful day where she encounters the her night, night flyer or the whatever night flyer. Or, or, or some other creature equally monstrous um, it seems to be inevitable because it's tied to it's her. a it's a story that's a piece of a bigger world and mm-hmm. I, I do like that about it and if you're not in Stephen King context you might not get that and that's otherwise you're just gonna get a decent vampire thriller and yeah. you know what if you're in the mood for that go to mm-hmm. yeah Iris in begin it's been a fitful night but you wake refreshed what is that beside you it's a book about vampires Nosferatu. Director F.W. Murnau had an obsession to create the world's most realistic vampire movie. Meet Count Orlok. The overture to our symphony of horrors. He dug up an actor. I'd like some makeup. Well, you don't get him. Who didn't just play the part. But you're not feeding. No, you're not drinking her blood. He lived it. What is the matter with you? Where did you find him, really? 
From Lionsgate Films and producer Nicolas Cage comes the haunting tale of the uncompromising. You, you will have no close-ups now. The unimaginable. And the undead. Okay, we're going to talk about Shadow of the Vampire. Um, this chronicles the making of the 1922 silent film Nosferatu. Um, and the almost mad genius, I guess, <laughs> that made it, um, named Murnau. What was his name? F.W. Murnau. <laughs> um, and I don't think this movie is very subtle in its, you know, who is the real monster theme. <laughs> uh, I, I think, in fact, that the screenplay and the presentation might be heavy-handed on it. But what it does have is John Malkovich and Willem Dafoe playing these two really really juicy lead roles <laughs> um and uh so it's it's weird it, it's a horror movie i would say that it is a vampire movie but it's yeah. also a historic sort of retelling of what the production of nosferatu would have looked like with the added wrinkle that max max shrek is not an actor max shrek is the real deal he is the thing <laughs> and uh a devil's bargain has been made with this vampire yes malkovich or Murnau, who's playing the director says uh you be my creature in this movie and i will give you the leading lady when we wrap you may you may have her <laughs> yeah and uh in spite of this, he ends up having the most diva actors he's ever had in on his hands because uh, Shrek has no interest in the artifice of film or film itself. He just wants to get a free meal and uh, is really sort of irritated by all this. <laughs> and that actually adds a really welcome and strange dose of humor to the film. <laughs> um, Willem Dafoe was nominated for Academy Award and, and uh, he's under layers of makeup, but he's just... Just licking this part up. He's just laying it on as thick as he can. It was incredible. And, uh, it, you would, you could almost accuse it of being high camp at times, but I don't know. I, I still kind of believe Trek enough to find him scary when they needed him to. Oh, absolutely. So uh, I think it's an interesting, one of a kind, almost a vampire movie. Um, but I'm totally willing to hear a second opinion. So. I uh, I really loved it. It was a toss-up between who is more monstrous, uh, Willem Dafoe's character or John Malkovich. Exactly. Those two, like, I mean, he starts off in... Um, I'm just going to... Sorry, kids. Pre-spoilers. It's going to yeah. be coming. <laughs> um, he starts out there like, we're not telling us what's going on here, director. What's going on? And... and um, um, and uh, John Malkovich's character absolutely obfuscating everything and just yeah. pushing off and um, and and every it's like it's like it was like watching um, a slow motion beautiful horror and terror because you can see things starting to lurch towards the terrible nastiness and and all these like beautiful little like. You know, the, they're marching into the spider's web, and the spider is already like coming in, and and the, and, and and you can see it as the audience, but the, but the the actors and the cast and the crew, they have absolutely no idea, and you're like, Ooh. <laughs> you know, um, 
The fact that his uh, director of photography is the first to get snacked upon <laughs> right at the beginning. Yeah. And you see him just shaking and huddling. And he's like, what's wrong with you? Are you okay? Oh, you're okay. Fine. Yeah. And, and nobody seems to notice that he's like twitching and shaking yeah. because, you know, already Shrek has... Been. And really, it sort of talks to the, to the madness of going over the deep end of art, you know. Mm -hmm. You and I, before we started recording, were talking about how, you know... It's almost impossible to get art funded where we live. Yeah. And this guy lived in an age in which he could justify almost any indignity in the name of art. Yeah. You're not going to meet your leading man and you're going to treat him with respect and refer to him only as his part because we have to respect the genius of his talent. And whatever we need to do to accommodate this genius, we're going to do. And the same thing with Murnau himself. Whatever is required to make this film the most amazing film it could ever be, it's going to happen. And he's a control freak. Yeah. In a weird way, I kind of think... Uh, this might be an ouch to James Cameron, but for his period, he was like the James Cameron of his day <laughs> in that like he was making the biggest budget spectacle movies and he was one of the more respected filmmakers. But when you worked on the set, it was not a creative enterprise. You did what you were told or you've got fucking fired, <laughs> right? So it wasn't a happy, shiny experience. Exactly. And uh, I think it's a trickier part for Malkovich. In a way, mm -hmm. all of the, the accolades went to Willem Dafoe, and he is great in it. But, but Malkovich has a, a less-dimensioned character because he doesn't have the excuse of being a predator, you know? Yeah, and He's that's... just a bastard. And... He might be a genius. He might be a brilliant filmmaker. And for the time he was making it, he, he was. Um, but... Art is not worth anybody's life. I'm, and you know, I say that, and I want to dedicate my life to art, but I'm not going to cost anyone their life for art. No. And his willingness to do this makes him as much of a monster as the vampire. Uh, and like I said, this is not subtly explored. <laughs> no, no, it is very heavy-handed. It is, it's intense. Um, but there's just like beautiful moments and interactions between Count Orlock and and. Um, and uh, Brain, Malkovich's character. Um, and there's one point where Shrek, and he's got those enormous four-inch long nails. Claws, yeah. The giant talons. And he does this thing where he... And, and, his, and it's interesting, like, his, his two front teeth are the fangs. Like these giant things that are twofers. And he does this thing where he clicks his fingers, yes. nails, rapidly together to express either agitation or excitement. And it's creepy <laughs> as all get out. Yeah. Oh, man. I, and the, especially when the leading actress is around, because he knows he's going to get to feed on her, he seems to have to concentrate to keep his mouth closed, and he's, like, practically salivating whenever he sees her. Practically chomping at the bit and not even exaggerating that terminology. Yeah. He's like... And it's a weird way that they sort of play the, the sexuality angle of it, too, because in, in Murnau's vision of Dracula, because they weren't actually doing... They couldn't get the rights to do Bram Stoker's book. Right. So they basically told the story under a different name yeah. and they changed him he didn't look like a, a romantic figure at all he was much more the monster so you wouldn't understand him being sexually appealing or being able to hypnotize or seduce the ladies but where the sex finds its way in is that the idea of feeding Tiff Shrek seems to have a sexual component to it as well. Yeah. Part of his excitement isn't just, I'm going to get a meal, I'm going to get a meal. You get the feeling like he gets real physical satisfaction out of it yeah. as well. Uh, and that's yucky. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the yucky. That's, that's the whole yucky part. Um, 
and uh, just like, oh my god, and just the the things, the lengths that uh, Malkovich's character goes to to just like try and keep him reined in while he's trying to film this madness, and then um, kind of the ending. Uh, I'm just, is it if I jump there? Yeah, the ahead. ending was like, it was a HP Lovecraft approved ending where madness descends, yeah. and you can just hear the last gears of Malkovich's character. Um, what was that? What was the filmmaker's name again? Uh, F.W. Marno. F.W. Marno, just like snap, 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 and he's like, "Okay, we're good now." And, and he's done. and he's like, "Do you have my straight jacket ready? Because yeah. I need that pad of rooms." Just, just <laughs> completely goes mad and insane. Every everyone and everything is dead around him, yeah. uh, including. Um, Orlock, who had briefly outwitted them. Yeah. And it could have been a very near, like, this film will never see the light of day, because yeah. no one's getting out of this pit alive. Well, and Murnau's arrogance does cost a lot of people their lives. Oh, <laughs> um, it does. Because he figures he's got, he, you know, as long as he treats this, it's much like he would treat a diva actress, right? Yeah. And just tap him on the head, give him whatever he wants. It's that mushroom analogy. Feed him shit and keep him in the dark, right? <laughs> but, uh, that's sort of his approach, and he has no doubt that his plan is going to work, and at the end, mm-hmm. they'll lift the shades, they'll kill this vampire, and uh, he can wrap production on the most brilliant horror movie ever made. Yeah. Um, but, of course, the vampire sees <laughs> this, this trap coming a mile away, and as a result, a lot of people die. And in the end, the only thing that still remains important to Renault is that the film is finished, and obviously it was. Yeah. Um, so, like I say, Malkovich only had that one beat to play. Basically, I'm a mad bastard. Um, yeah. And so there's a little less dimension to his character, but I still think he does a good job. I think it's also interesting for the rest of the cast and crew. Like, they're playing basically three layers of characters. Like, they're actors playing actors who are acting. Yeah. Right? And then they are actors playing actors who are acting, but who are also terrified of the Smack Shrek guy. Yeah. So you can sort of see their performances struggling. Eddie Izzard plays the supporting role in this movie. He's actually a stand-up comedian of some note. He does a lot of Mm -hmm. uh, really good work. He's a funny guy. And he's got the great scene where he's one of the first people that works with Orlock. Yes. And he has to walk down this dark corridor with these candles and, and have Orlock be revealed to him. And he's not that good of an actor. So when he starts really getting scared... We can tell, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, and that's really cool layered acting from Izzard, right? Because, yeah. Because, like I said, he's an actor playing an actor who is acting and then who loses his character because he gets frightened. Like, there's a lot of cards to be played there. And everybody gets to do that, too. Even the people behind the camera or, mm-hmm. or, or, or crouching behind Merno, just watching it. You can see that they just... there's. Uh, as soon as Willem Dafoe walks on set, everybody wants to take a step away from him, and you get it. Yeah, and you, you get it. You can feel it. It's like Dafoe had, or like, uh, or like had like a fear aura that was projected out. It's like every the degrees, the, the room temperature dropped a few degrees when he stepped in. It was just. Yeah. I wonder though if this might not be a bit of an actor or a film theater person movie. In that, because that's where I got a lot of the joy out of it, is seeing those layers peeled back and seeing the depth of the acting. Because if I'm honest, it's actually a fairly slowly moving picture. 
comparatively to these vampire mm-hmm. movies. And the payoffs that you get, there aren't, aren't those great dramatic romantic heights and, and pits and valleys. And because mm-hmm. the characters are all sort of various shades of gray, you know, their deaths sort of are less impactful. Yeah, and I think um, both of us being actors, I think that's, I, I could, would definitely agree with you there. I remember when I first seen this film, I was just, it was awesome watching exactly what you described. Um, the actors suddenly, you know, pretending to be something. The actors acting, acting as acting, and then suddenly not so much acting, but still <laughs> acting. And I was like, oh, this is good. So many layers, yeah. Um, so I would put that out there. I mean, I'm still giving this movie a, a recommend. Mm-hmm. Definitely, I would too. But uh, I, just, I just wanted to put that out there. It's fairly leisurely paced. And it is almost, it sort of starts like a, a historical drama. And then it sort of bleeds more and more into the horror. And when we get to the climactic moments, where a lot of it is shown through the lens of the camera, in a way we almost have a found footage finale. Yeah, and, <laughs> and just to say that a bit about the cinematography, I really enjoyed that. When it would bleed into the old sepia tones and go into the... the oh, I just, Using the techniques of the day. It uh, was so beautiful. To tell the story. There's even sound, or those... those uh, language cards that will give us updates of where they are in the production, Mm -hmm. much the way they would slide those cards in for silent films. There's a lot to admire in this movie, Mm -hmm. but uh, it's not wall-to-wall, teeth and snot, as my father would say. It's more of a film than a movie in that respect, you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, definitely, definitely. No man has ever provoked such terrible fear and such haunting desire. Dracula. Starring Frank Langella. With Laurence Olivier. I am the last of my kind. Descended from a conquering race. But I must warn you to take good care. If at any time my company does not please you, you will have only yourself to blame. Oh God, that's my poor shadow. John Badham is a fairly big Hollywood director, and um, he got to do in the late 70s, 1979 to be precise, his own take on the Dracula, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, And he took from the time the Frank Langella, who had played it on stage, and had sort of uh, been greatly lauded, not just because he was a strong presence on stage, but uh, at the time he was... It was close to like a Brad Pitt type figure for women out totally. there. Totally. <laughs> like uh, Frank Langella was just a heartthrob at the time. He was like... He was sex on legs, baby. <laughs> absolutely. There's no uh, question. It is funny that uh, there is a period in the late 60s and early 70s where it seems anybody could have been a leading man for a while there. <laughs> like, <laughs> like what was deemed attractive for men seemed to be if he was able to dress himself. <laughs> 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 um, I think that, that Langella is sort of started opening up things more to, and for better or for worse, Mm -hmm. creating the male equivalent of the cast for looks (laughs) type of movie star. That's not saying that Frank Langella isn't a great actor. I do think he is a good actor, but uh, I think he's kind of become a great actor over the course of his career in a lot of ways. I think a lot of the reason he got roles when he was young is because, what he said, he had his own sort of 
sex appeal. Exactly. And it's present here as well. Um, Lawrence Olivier, some obscure actor, I believe. Oh, uh, um, I, I think I heard he might have been something called the greatest actor of the 20th century. Possibly. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, Donald Pleasance. From, well, everybody will remember him from Halloween 4. Oh. And, uh, and Canadian actress, probably hitting her high watermark as far as Hollywood, uh, Kate Nelligan. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, this was a big budget sort of spectacle, and um, it, it was fairly well received. To me, this was kind of my Dracula movie, uh, in that it was the first way in which the Dracula story was told to me. And I saw it when I was six years old. Oh, wow. And I was fucking terrified by it. You know, <laughs> it seems like you and I have similar stories because, like, that was, it, Dracula was my first one. Uh, yeah, this is, like, again, I've seen lots of versions since, but this is the one that's sort of stuck into my head. And, and there's images that are just burned into my brain. But I have to revisit it, you know, 30 years later, uh, watching it now. And it, it's a different film than I saw when I was a kid. Um, I'm just going to say, I'm just admitting that I'm bringing personal baggage to this movie. And I want to just sort of bring that up there for It's okay, Larry. It's okay. You can bring your baggage. It's okay. Um, it's okay, little six-year-old Larry. You can do it. I'm going to be safe. You'll be I'm all gonna right. Be safe. It's going to be okay. The monster's not going to eat you. No, no, no. Thank you for being here for me, Davey. You're welcome. So I, I was very scared by this when I was a child. And uh, I was kind of amused and nostalgic. While I was watching it now, uh, a lot of the seventiness that I didn't oh, notice man. when I was a kid, yeah. I noticed a lot now, and it, <laughs> it, it it's not quite Waka Chicka seventies, but there's something about like the sidebirds, the mm-hmm. style, a few turn of phrases that we have in the movie kind of tips its hand that mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> we're in the Waka Chicka seventies. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I don't know. I, I I kind of. I'm, I'm perplexed as how to approach reviewing this, so I'm going to throw the ball into your court. Okay, I think I can possibly identify why you um, might have been like terrified as a child, because there's a thing called the five-minute rule. Right. Now, the five-minute rule was established by a friend of mine named Steve Zinterer, a.k.a. Silent Mountain. Okay. Um, the five-minute rule is something that is typically applied to action films, but can also be applicable to horror films. That if somebody dies within the first five minutes, it's going to be a good movie. <laughs> and so I suspect what you saw, because the five-minute rule is most definitely in full effect for this film. <laughs> Absolutely. They're, they're, they're like, oh my god, there's evil on the ship, the rats are freaking out, it's the high storms, and they're trying to toss... Spoiler alert, by the way, boys and girls! They're trying to toss the coffin off. And that hand comes through and casually drags its fingers across the throat. Cries throat, taking the throat with them. Spurt, spooge. That was I was like, oh yeah, that that's approved. Yeah. Uh, so I suspect um, maybe some of your absolute sheer. Oh my god! If I could only remember what was the fi- the thing for my version of Dracula that freaked me out. Uh, my... I can tell you the exact scene for me. Oh really? Um, yeah. It's the scene where Laurence Olivier and. Uh, Donald Pleasance and another guy go down into the crypt <gasps> uh, to put down not Lucy but Lucy. Mina, uh, Amina. Oh, Amina. Was it Mina? No, Mina is the main, the girl who survives. It was Lucy that they had to stake down. Yes, right? it was Lucy. Uh, Lucy had vamped out and been buried, but they knew that she would been vampirized, and in order to put her soul to rest, they had to stake her. And her father does the deed. Just the, past the visceral violence of it, and this ghoulish creature yelling "Papa" to this 
man as he stakes her and kills her and the psychological destruction of him. I'd seen violence before and I'd seen drama before, but I think something about that, and I was like, again, in the single digit age category, mm-hmm. there was something just too horrifying about that scene. That, <laughs> no, and I would agree with you. That scene stood out because there they are in the warrens of this ancient uh, abandoned coal mine, which had been like, apparently a cemetery was a good place to build on top of a coal mine or whatever. She had slipped through her grave into the coal mine and was using it as her easy feeding access. And here she is in her, you know, funeral garb with her blood-red glowing eyes and yeah. her childish demeanor and just slowly, liquid slow motion moving towards her father. That was genuinely, like... Oh my god, this is scary. So as a six-year-old, I can completely understand why. And I do think that the film kind of, as far as a horror movie, peaks there. Mm-hmm. It never hits that height again. No. Uh, and, uh, that's not really even at the ending, not even. I and uh, I, I was more scared during the, that sequence, and it might have a lot to do with Olivier, too. I thought he was really strong in that, that scene uh, than I was in any other point of the movie. I wasn't as scared of Frank Langella as Dracula. No. Um, there were some great moments, like him climbing up the side of the of the mental institutes to, to deal with the Renfield, that blabbermouth. Oh, that Renfield. <laughs> he could have had a good thing, but he had not shut his trap. <laughs> yeah. Uh, That's what you get. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like when you make a deal with the devil. You know, like you gotta. At some part of you just knows you're gonna get fucked over. <laughs> oh yeah. If you agree to become this uh, puppet of a of a vampire, a familiar, or whatnot, I think at some point it's just self destructive. You gotta know you're gonna be screwed over. At some point. Absolutely, and but and and he complained and complained. Oh, that Rennie. He's such a he's such a scamp. Um, one of the other things about just sort of the cinematography and the sweepingness that I loved was where Dracula was housed up. Was it a mansion or a castle or kind of a combination of both? Yeah, it's sort of like a mansion, I think, more. But because uh, he was he was trying to make it closer to what he was used to, but it was as close as he could approximate and to his his original like. Castle. Castle. It really did feel like a thing of earth and darkness and shadows because when you opened up, it's like the light didn't go anywhere. It's like, whoa. Yeah. And uh, it was it was pretty, I, I thought, I just liked the cinematography. It was pretty spectacular that way. Um, I, I would say that like for this film, I really, um, I really did enjoy it like a great deal. I would definitely give it a, you should watch this. Um, I'm not sure that the romantic angle worked for me as strongly as it yeah. should have. I didn't quite buy the appeal that that she saw in this creature. Uh, it, it's she's I guess Lucy's not as in the or Mina is not as in the dark because I'm used to that character being in this. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a lot of real obvious reasons why she is making counterproductive decisions throughout the movie. And I, I think that's that '70s bleed the. <laughs> Sacral. We're going to be liberated. such dark, soulful eyes that I'll do anything. Yeah. Anything. But there were moments that I felt were serving the plot more than they were serving common sense. You know, mm, here's another yeah. scene where she's going to walk down a dark corridor because we need a scene where she walks down a dark corridor. Yeah, and, and she's going to make this terrible decision because it's going to serve yeah. that. But I didn't feel that connection. Um, 
there's been other takes on the Dracula story, and there will be. Uh, uh, Francis Ford Coppola did one in the early 90s, and there's something so bombastic about that version mm -hmm. where it was just like, grabbing you by the face saying look at this movie we're making a dracula movie what <laughs> <laughs> this one doesn't quite hit that extreme notes but it does yeah. it, do it does have fairly large scale to it and it's it's doing the story justice i mean yeah. bram stoker's dracula is a fairly significant work of literature i, I understand it but um I still am a little bit curious that if I hadn't seen it when I was six, would I like this movie as much as I do now? I do think it's fine. It's a, it's mm -hmm. a decent telling of the Dracula story. I'm not foaming at the mouth over it. But it's I, good. I really do wonder if I didn't have that personal history, if I would feel the same way about it, or if I would just more or less just dismiss it as a nice try. You know, it's another Dracula movie. Watch it or don't. Yeah. Right now, I'm just say, watch it, watch it, watch it. It'll fuck you up. But that's because six-year-old Larry is still hiding under his bed. <laughs> Terrifying. <laughs> it's okay, little buddy. You can come out. I've got popcorn. <laughs> the other movie that this we already reviewed we called Creepshow. I remember seeing this movie Creepshow when I was a kid with this crate monster in it. And there's just images from that movie that are just indelibly which, imprinted. Which monster was it? In, in, the story called The Crate, where this creature jumps out. It looks like this Tasmanian devil thing with teeth, mm -hmm. and it kills a lot of people graphically in the movie, and uh, it horrified me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm a big fan of Creepshow to this day, but again, much like with this Dracula, would I like it as much if it hadn't scarred me when I was a kid? Yeah. <laughs> and oh, is yeah. it a good thing that I was scarred by these movies when I was a child? Oh. I didn't think it was good at the time. I do think it's good now, but I, uh, damage has been done. Uh, you could say damage, but maybe we could call it colorful scarring or, or something like that. I'm going to say I land right in the middle on this one, so I guess I'm putting the ball in the viewer's or listener's court. If it sounds like something they want to check out, it probably is. I, I say this one was okay. Like, I, 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 I didn't mind it. Um, it wasn't bad. It definitely, you can definitely see the 70s elements there, but it wasn't overwhelming 70s elements, so um, I, I liked it. It was good. I'd say if you want to see it, it's good. Might as well just kill me then, too. Caleb Colton no longer belongs to our world. We we'll give him a week, see if we can call him one of us. He belongs to hers. But you have to learn to kill. He belongs to theirs. I don't want to kill. He makes a kill tonight. And they all belong to the night. It's three hours short for us to get home. You help me out. What are you on? Believe me. I told you. Just don't think of it as killing. Demon. Demon. Don't think at all. It's just something that you do night after night. It's only ever a question of how. Nerves. I would be too if I were you. Near dark. Could be your boys falling in with the trouble. Check out time. All right. Uh, we're going to talk about Near Dark. Um, this comes from the year 1987. And uh, Catherine Bigelow took about half of the cast from Aliens and shoved them into this vampire movie. <laughs> um, Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxton, and Jeanette Goldstein had all just worked together in, in Aliens. <laughs> so it's kind of like a, <laughs> they just got on to the next gig. And I, I can't help but not think this is just entirely a coincidence because Catherine Bigelow was tied up uh, both professionally and personally with James Cameron at the time. And mm. so, coincidentally, her next movie, 
brought a lot of people that was in his high-profile science fiction film. Nice. Uh, um, but I don't think they took it as a favor to Cameron. I could see these parts being really actually fun to play. <laughs> and uh, the story concerns this boy, Caleb, who uh, meets a mysterious but very attractive woman played by Jenny Wright. And uh, he thinks he's going to get some romance and maybe a little action, but he ends up getting bit. And he ends up waking up in the morning, finding steam coming off of his body with the morning sunlight. Yes. And he quickly comes to realize that he is being made into a vampire. And he has a choice to either play ball and become one of the gang or be made into food. And he's basically being told, broken into the gang, essentially. He's got the period of a week or two before they decide whether or not he's a team player or whether or not he is meat for the freezer. Yeah. Uh, and in a way, it would be like you or I playing a round of 21 with a hamburger. <laughs> you know, typically they look at people as food. And, yeah. they, you know, they're not looking to add to their, their gang because they live a hard life. They and do. In this modern age of vampires, in order to stay under the radar, they have to keep moving. And they basically live like mobile red trash or, or, or uh, mobile trash essentially. yeah <laughs> you know and uh that's that's the life that they're living mm -hmm. they try to sort of t sell themselves that they're cool and badass but there's something sort of rough hewn about yeah them. so it's an interesting take and it's really well made uh Catherine Bigelow co-wrote it with this man named Eric Red who has a reputation for writing fairly dark thrillers with teeth most famously uh which i'll be reviewing with your friend of mine ashley patch the hitcher mm. um anyway uh, thus is the premise for near dark what did you think i had originally seen this film close to the time when it had originally come out and it scared the shit out of me it was it was good and then so watching it i have i have also nostalgia watching it again and um i really did enjoy it um it was uh lance hendrickson was just i just it was fantastic to watch him and uh with bill paxton being in it i kind of imagined having a think about it it was like man it's like chet from weird science got <laughs> turned into a vampire and here he is as evil Chet because right. if, if you listen at one point he does briefly the Chet laugh and right. oh my god I, weird science which I absolutely watched the shit out of um, yeah so and then Bill uh, it was yeah it was I thought it was amazing um, it, it was really interesting because this one um, this one was an 80s movie, so yeah. it, it's, it, it, I get to go, okay, this is an 80s movie. I'm in the context of the 80s movies. I dig it. And uh, it's recognizably 80s and yet not distractingly 80s. Yeah. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, no, and it, it's not so much. It, it's he, he starts out as very sort of naive, and he's kind of from podunk nowhere, and he's kind of a farm boy podunk, and he meets the... And again, he gets way more than he bargains for and gets accidentally turned, and he starts transforming, and he's kind of going, oh my god, what's going on? And there's the whole scene where his whole family is trying to track him down. And yeah, that's sort of interesting. His old family is trying to rescue him from his quote-unquote new family. Mm -hmm. And uh, he doesn't necessarily want to be in it. That's the really 
troubling part for Caleb is that he didn't ask for any of this, you know? He, he just thought Jenny Wright was cute. And he's right, she is very attractive in this movie, but uh, he bit off way more than he could chew. Way more. And, uh, I mean, being put in that position, nobody wants to die necessarily, but if you have to kill people to live... It's a it's a bitter pill to swallow, and right? They they lived and they burned their vehicles to cover their tracks, yep. and they would spray paint the inside, and they carried rolls and rolls of like tin foil to cover up. I'm just, it wasn't fun. <laughs> it was I was like, yeah, it just really felt like like ancient hunter gatherers who are finding their territories diminishing every day, yeah. and just. What do you do? And I get the feeling like the Lance Henriksen and the the his is it Jeanette Goldstein, I want to say the name. Yeah, um, they kind of have such a rich history that they remember a different time yeah. where it wasn't like this. Yeah, and they they keep going and they keep sustaining themselves out of habit, but there's something a little empty to them. Yeah, and the younger. Uh, vampire they keep with them, which is a, a, a character you see often in vampire movies, children that were turned. Yeah. Uh, and the being trapped in a child's body oh, and having man. all the needs of an adult. Oh, brutal. Uh, you, you know, I think that a lot of points to the screenplay, and I do think that Eric read, read uh, fingerprints are on a lot of that, that stuff. Um, the Bill Paxton character, you get the feeling like, is the young upstart kid. They brought into the clan because they were bored and they needed, you know, someone new to look after. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't quite get that once upon a time, this is not how it was. Yeah. He likes this sort of root and toot and redneck lifestyle. <laughs> There's a scene, one of the more memorable scenes in the movie, where they go into a bar. Oh, the bar time, scene. Yes. And uh, they lock the doors and everybody on the premises is made meet. <laughs> and uh, he very gleefully opens this man's throat with the spurs on his boots. Which was spectacular and that, that was one of the things that freaked me yeah, out the most. Having not seen anything like that, especially at the time in the 80s, um, and seeing the difference with how he handles the killing than the other ones. Uh, Lance Henriksen will isolate kill somebody, but he'll do it fairly painlessly. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's food for him. He yeah. doesn't, he doesn't, it's not personal. No. It's not personal. You, in, in his mind, it was cruel fate for you that you happened to choose this night to close out the bar. Yeah. Uh, he didn't choose you, fate chose you. Whereas the Bill Paxton character really, really relishes the violence. And, oh, and, he plays with his food. And he wants, exactly, he's like a cat playing with his food and he wants to see this. So Adrian Bazdar sees both of these sort of figures and wants nothing to do with either of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it, and it was it was interesting seeing him when they finally came to the point of like the the fateful meeting where they ended up uh, meeting at the same hotel and the child vampire stumbles across his sister yeah. and they're like we're gonna watch a movie together and I'm like this will end badly indeed and it had been set from the beginning spoilers. Uh, it had been said from the beginning that um, the child vampire had created um, the love interest. Uh, and and when uh, the, the lead character comes into it, and it's obvious that There's he, some jealousy there. There's a lot of jealousy, and there's things that he can't do and he wants to do. So he comes across this girl, and you can, you're just watching, again, it's like slow motion accident of terror. It's like, oh God, he's going to do it, he's going to do it. But she, the hilariously, 
the little girl proves to be like the scrappiest of scrappers and yeah. like beans him like not once but twice bests him's like wham and he's like ugh and he didn't see that coming he wasn't expecting that and in a way neither were we no <laughs> so we're like wait wait what she did what i really do like the war of the two families too the tug mm-hmm. of war for caleb mm-hmm. um his trust has to be earned with the vampire family, but when he takes a bullet to get them out of a bad situation, and happily the vampire skills, or vampire magic, whatever it is, keeps him alive. Mm-hmm. But that's basically what it takes. You got the feeling he was one bad comment away from being at dinner until he, he saved the gang yeah. in, in, that, in that exchange. Uh, so his trust was hard won, but then once he has that trust, what does he do with it? Did he really want it in the first place? You know, yeah. His family have this pure thing where they just want to get their son back. And uh, I think that the problematic machinations of the plot happen towards the end. Yeah. There's uh, this conceit that this can all be solved with a convenient blood transfusion. Yes, which was like even at the time of my... My it's a stretch anyway, and you like, think that if that it, it could be cured, these vampires who had been living this existence for this long would have known that by this point, you know? It's a convenient plot device to help us work our way towards a happy ending. Yes. And I didn't 100% buy that. In a way, this sort of felt like it should have taken a page from the werewolf movie, is that it's a tragic story. Once you're bitten by the werewolf, you're kind of fucked. Yeah. You either you have to kill yourself, or you have to resign yourself that you're going to murder people every month. Yeah, or be out of soda control that you can't deal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think that, that that's honestly where, I, in my mind, that's the story that was sort of being set up here. Yeah. He was going to have to either burn himself up one morning to stop himself, or, you know, have some kind of a noble, redeeming, sacrificial death. Mm-hmm. That's where I thought it was going. And no, in fact, the power of love cures Caleb, and Apparently. he is able to rescue Jenny, and the rest of the bad, unfixable vampires have a fairly, it's a very visually strong, but needlessly, you know, sudden death. They uh, apparently explode, spoilers, like hydrogen bombs. They, they were amazing. It just, that scene where... Uh, Jenny and the and rescues the baby girl. She makes her decision in the car to dive out of the car. Yeah, yeah dive out of the car and thus risk her life potentially. And the boy, the baby, the the boy vampire who chases after chase her after them and immediately starts burning like madness. And I think that what's implied here is that they were living out the end of their days. In a way, I sort of see this movie as like, vampires are actually slowly going extinct, and we're seeing the final pockets kind of winking out of existence. Um, But still, the nature of them seemed to be to want to fight and persist despite their scenario. And at the end, it was almost like they just read the script and they knew the movie needed to be over soon. So Lance Henriksen and and his companion, basically they threw up their hands and allowed themselves to die. It seems to be what happened. That's what was the feeling. Um, And it's a little bit anticlimactic in that way, but by this point, the movie has been so good that I already like it. And like I said, it's really well realized. When the Jenny Wright character is running and she's got the jacket over her trying and he's trying to get the sun off her and all of that smoke is billowing off of her. I don't even know how they accomplished that effect in 1987, but it was really, really cool. It was amazing. And that that child actor presumably running in a full fire burn (laughs) uh, in broad daylight after 
you know, he just wants a companion so badly that he was willing to do anything. Yeah. There were some amazing moments that were drilled into my head uh, with the hotel confrontation where the father character shoots Lance Hendrickson's character with his pistol right. point blank. And Lance Hendrickson <laughs> spits up. up the bullet and neatly put the bloody bullet in his his uh, coat pocket or yeah. his, his shirt pocket. Just so you know who it is you're dealing with. Yeah, <laughs> that that those were moments that were just like, oh, who's the badass now? Yeah, and badass is the right word. For mm-hmm. it. That's a really good descriptor for this movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Catherine Bigelow's gone on to do bigger, brighter things, um, and. Uh, she's much more of a serious filmmaker now. She she doesn't do movies like Point Break or Near Dark anymore, but mm-hmm. part of me kind of wishes she would. Yeah. <laughs> because I think she's good at it. Oh, yeah. I bet you maybe she, there might be a few more in her. You never know. Call me Martin. I've seen things you wouldn't believe. Things a boy shouldn't see. Sounds like any other kid... I didn't believe in the boogeyman. Then the world woke up to a nightmare. Welcome to Stakeland, kid. Get your boots on, your guns ready. We're gonna put some distance between us and this place. We were on our own now, traveling through a ruined land. We live by his rules, or we die, or worse. We die and we come back. How many of those things have you killed? Not enough. Like Mr. Says, live free or die trying. Keep your weapons close and ready. What are you gonna do? Okay, um, last but in no way least, I would like to talk about this Stakeland movie. And uh, I think this is another one of those vampire movies by way of zombie movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because the vampires are very zombie in that they're everywhere and you're sort of a constant siege state. Um, we are greatly outnumbered. It's a post apocalyptic world, basically, that we're introduced to. But for a 98 minute movie, this thing feels epic. Holy crap, yes. <laughs> uh, like, it, the scope of it seems large. And um, it's from Glass Eyed Picks, uh, produced by uh, Larry Fessenden, who I'm a big fan of. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, directed by Jim Mickle, and co-written by Jim Mickle, and its star, uh, Nick Dempsey? Dempsey? I'm terrible with these names. Yeah, that's all right. Um, I've never seen him before, but he co-wrote the script, and he plays Mr., yeah. In the film. Uh, sort of the main mysterious man with no name. Yeah. And Mr., our protagonist, picks up Kid, who has survived alone uh, an attack on his family by vampires. And they basically survive together in this post-apocalyptic world of vampires. Daylight is safe. They can travel by by day. But at night, they got to find a hole that's deep and, and they got to <laughs> they gotta be safe. And barricade are, it and barricade it and barricade it. There are pockets of humanity here and there. There are safe zones. And they're trying to get to the paradise lost that is Canada. Huzzah! <laughs> <laughs> it may be chilly here, but there's less vampires, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so it's basically an epic quest north and and there is in typical sort of road movie fashion seems to be chapters 
to this. Mm -hmm. This happens, then this happens, then this happens. There's a lot of names in here that will give it some sort of cult credibility. Larry Fessenden being the big one for me, but Danielle Harris is uh, basically been in horror movies since she was a little kid. Uh, <laughs> and uh, some of the early Halloween movies, and then when she grew up, she was in the Halloween remakes, and she's been all over sort of direct-to-video horror slasher, sexy fun romp uh, <laughs> horror movies for a while. She's, she's, she brings her own audience. And uh, interestingly, a supporting role from Kelly McGillis of uh, Top Gun <laughs> and uh, many 80s films. And uh, she's sort of come into her own lately uh, doing supporting roles in horror movies like this one. Um, uh, no longer sort of the sex symbol that she was in the 80s, now sort of reinvented as sort of a character actress. Yeah. Um, there's lots of things to like about this movie, but it has a mean streak. So, Damien, please do tell me what you thought of Stakeland. I, of all the movies, of all these movies, this one was the most intense, visceral, oh my god, you just didn't do that, did you? <laughs> like, it, it did not pull any punches. I had, Originally, I had watched it, or tried to watch it, close to the time of when it had first come out, and I was not perhaps in the best frame of mind or prepared because the first now I had seen there was a series of trailers and I don't know if you'd seen the trailers leading into this film um, but they were basically the trailers showing the night of Martin who's the the boy character um, who gets picked up by mister I'm saying that right yeah Martin and it's just him in his room and he's just chilling and he's like looking around and it's dark and all of a sudden you see a quick snap of him like white, his his lips are kind of like peeled back a bit and he's gasping and, and, and freaking out and then and then it's, and it snaps and then you hear his mom calling him. Yeah. Right? And so there was like two of those leading into this. So I'm like, I'd seen that and I thought, you know, okay. Um, you were prepared for what was going on. I, I, th I thought I was prepared. I was like, you know, like it's, it, but only amplified what was coming within the first five minutes. So I'd started the, I'd, I'd originally watched this before and I'd seen the first five minutes and then I stopped <laughs> because uh, it starts off with an absolute bang. Um, Martin, the boy, ends up going outside. Uh, it's been established that they're, they need to get out of the, wherever the heck they are right away. It's nightfall. Bad things are happening. Counterintuitive logic. You think running outside into the dark to chase... I think he was chasing his dog or something yeah. like that. He's like, no, no, don't go outside. Apparently that was the safe place to go. <laughs> because the nightmare began unfolding on the inside. And that's when we run into Mr. I'm going to... Sorry, kids. Spoilers, sweeties. Yeah, spoilers. We, we make spoiler warning at the top of the show. All right. they, they'll know to expect that. Okay. I, I just like shouting spoilers. <laughs> um, and then things start getting butchered in the inside. And then you run into the ever so sweet and charming Mr. who... Says, you know, he really endears himself to Martin with the, the first line is like, Here's a gun! If you shoot me, I'll fucking kill you! You know, it was like really charming. Uh, He's not going to give him any any kind of points for the fact that his entire family has just died in front of you. Just in front of him. And died. I think what you keep glossing over. I'm, get, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I'm trying. I'm really working towards it. He comes into the house and he's shining the flashlight and there's his dad dying. There's his mom already dead. She was, she was the first one to shout at him and scream and was dragged screaming Boy. back into the house. And then the light comes up to the second floor where the vampire is. And you hear the baby crying, 
The baby's crying, and then the baby stops crying. And then the light comes up, and you see him having a little snack pack with the baby, like a little rotisserie, like a, like a piece of meat corn, and then just casually drops the dead baby. And at that point, that was the sound of my brain breaking the yeah. first time. Here's the thing. We do not see shit like that very often. At Holy all. crap, It's the no. sort of thing where it, it would be an instant NC-17, and it's probably the reason why this movie only had a very limited theatrical release. Yeah. Uh, it's so fucking harsh. And uh, in a way, I don't think we see anything quite that harsh again through the no. movie, but it's the classic sort of horror movie trick is saying, by the way, we're not sparing you anything. In no. this movie, vampires are fucking scary, yeah. and they will kill you, and they have no problem about it. They're not going to stop and fall in love with your teenage daughter. They're not going to, you know, show sympathy to your baby. A baby is an easy meal. Yeah. And this is the world that he has woken up to. I think the biggest question about that scene, and I like to think that it's a play that happened very quickly, uh, that they got the notice to leave and they were just hearing it now. Because the real question is, why did they choose to wait till sundown to leave? It's established that vampires can't travel during the day. But whatever the reason, this kid loses his entire family and is basically adopted by Mr. And he teaches him how to fight and survive and live in this new world. Yeah. This new world that Mr. seems strangely built for. <laughs> like, he, he seems to... Not only survive, but somewhat thrive here. I have, like, an interesting... a friend. I watched this with a friend of mine, Slade, and he had a very interesting theory about who Mr. actually is. Because Mr. just sort of suddenly appears, just kind of, like, out of nowhere in a way. An imaginary friend, savior figure? I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, it's very interesting because... Um, I'm, I'm going to jump around a little bit because, like, at the end... Uh, Mister's gone mysteriously, and it's not—it's not like he was killed no. or died. He's just gone. I understand that inclination, and I think that it could—it—it it, it could be interpreted that way. I think Mister is a real character. Obviously, okay. other characters interact with him. He has conversations. Yeah, and then, and then there is actually material and physical evidence but left. Th that him. would be a cool and interesting different movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That, but, no, I think we can take it at face value. Yeah. Um, when I just go to speak to the general harshness of the tone of the movie, because that's what I would want to prepare people for. Oh, uh, yeah. A scene that got edited out, but you can see in the extra features. I don't know if you checked them out. I actually the, didn't. There's a scene where uh, a couple of guys come upon a, a, a nun who is burying her sister who had died. <laughs> and uh, seeing this woman on her own at a church decide it would be nice to rape her. Right. We a, did see the fallout from that. We saw yes. the aftermath of that. But mm -hmm. there's just a scene where they the car stops and she looks up the hill and they, they see her and she sees them. And there's a scene where one of the guys just immediately pulls off this smock he's wearing and he's stark naked underneath and he just starts walking towards her. And uh, it's just another one of these like shocking moments where like there's not even a conversation between the two of them. Oh, you're a woman. Well, I'm gonna, I'm going to rape you. <laughs> this is the world that we live in, and and this is the harshness that you're going to be subjected to. Yeah. Um, the Kelly McGillis character is found by Mister and the kid, and sort of joins their group for a while. And that's sort of the movie. It's a series of harsh events. Yeah. They, there's a brief reprieve where they find a a small civilization, 
and uh, re- get some supplies. They are introduced to this Daniel Harris character who is pregnant and wants to head north with them because she wants to be safe. Yeah. And the word is that the uh, vampires, being cold-blooded creatures themselves, do not like the cold. So the farther north you go, the fewer of them you have to deal with. Yeah. And, and that is an interesting moment, too, because... Um, the nun character had broken off briefly uh, at some point, had gotten separated from them, and she had actually been there and um, and was briefly reunited, you know, and it was like a beautiful, tiny it was, they even had a, like, a slow motion moment where the Martin the, the boy, Martin, had uh, who had grown attached to the nun character and, and, you know, her representation you know, she's a, he, because he would always be you know, carrying around little icons like the Virgin Mary, you know, little crosses, he'd place them places. And Mr. would have his little comments of just like, we don't have time for no history. Yeah. You know, so... Um, Mr. Anything like that is just weakness, according to Mr. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and probably one of the things we should also discuss, uh, I will talk about that little sunshine moment and its interruption, uh, but to backtrack a bit is the the cults the death cults that arose that were this weird, bizarre hybrid of Christianity and vampirism mixed together. It was sort of a can't beat them, beat them join them type of thing. I figure yeah. if they leave offerings for the vampires, uh, perhaps they will last longer. They will last longer. Uh, it's this sort of despicable evil, again, that lends more credulity to my sort of theory that uh, this is a zombie movie disguised as a vampire movie. Whereas mm-hmm. in zombie movies, you'll find that Zombies are the threat that everyone has to overcome, mm-hmm. but the real villains become other people. Yeah. Uh, that's what we see in the cult here. And I think this would almost be like a 10-star movie for me, but that's one of the fatal flaws, I think. that Well, maybe not fatal, but a flaw for sure, that a character that we are introduced to in the first half of the movie shows up again at the end of the movie to present himself as a big bad if this was a video game, he would be the boss that you fought at the end of the level. And yeah. uh, he's not consistent with any kind of vampire type we've seen up to this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, he's, he's convenience. His character is just overly convenient. For the amount of ground they're covering, they could have just run into another band of yeah. baddies. I don't think that they needed to create a supervillain. Mm-hmm. I think that the world was the supervillain. The world and was I the supervillain. I think that bringing that character back specifically is the one plot point that I have real issues with. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, I think that the fact that they went that hard, uh, this is not the sort of thing that I would want to see all of the time. I don't want every movie to feature a baby. <laughs> yeah. But I, res- I respect the guts that it takes to do that. And, and, and in doing it early in the movie, it's, it reminds me of the first episode of The Walking Dead. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've seen that. But oh, one no. Of the, one of the first things you see in The Walking Dead TV shows, it's seriously the first scene, so spoilers, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, is that Rick, the main character, comes upon the zombie of a little girl yeah. holding a doll. Yeah. And he pulls the trigger and blows her brains out. I did see that. And that was the first thing you see in the show. And it's basically saying, if you don't like this, stop now. <laughs> like you turning off the movie five minutes in, fair game. I bet you that that has been the experience for a lot of people in this movie. Yeah. But like I was looking for sort of a fun, you know, you thought near dark was a dark, brutal vampire movie. 
Until you watch Stakeland. Stakeland. No, we're gonna show you a dark, mean, brutal fucking vampire yeah. movie. Yeah. And and that's what this comes with. Oh. Um and we're not done. Like uh, Oh god, they, there's they pages did, to talk about. They did here. they did edit the the guy like approaching the sister character to rape her. They took that scene out, but other scenes aren't spared. Uh the one character who is pretty much managed almost entirely to keep her humanity, probably because she's lived in the the settlement for so long we kind of like and we understand her motivation to try and find a safe place for her baby oh yeah but the movie had already been harsh enough that the second that she got in the car for me i knew she was dead yeah i knew that this woman was going to die she was not going to see the happily happy ever after and uh true to that point but she dies slowly and <sighs> badly and and, and like no punches once again, Phil. No, nope, nope. uh, and so you got You may need to wear an apron for this one. <laughs> like, it's it is a bitter pill because, but it is entertaining and scary in yeah. a way that very few vampire movies are. Yeah, it it became like uh, speaking of like the the environment being the massive predator. Uh, once Mister um, had made it known that he was not going to tolerate the death cult in any shape or form, spectacularly by throwing his giant wooden throwing star through the back of the son of the bad guy, yeah. uh, killing him. He was a rapist and a murderer. Yeah, yeah. No and harm, no foul. Yeah, he didn't care. Uh, they started leaving little messages for him on the roadways, like, where are you, mister? And I'm like, oh boy, that, it, was, it was creepy. Um, mister was a spectacular force of nature in himself because... Even though they had captured him at one... Spoiler, sweetie. Yeah. They had captured him and strung him up and, and had pretty much taken away everything. And they're like, ha, 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 ha. We're gonna, he got his way out. Yeah. And he made it back to his car before Martin did. Yeah. And, that was, and that was another scary part, too. Martin making the choice to try and make it back to the car by nightfall. And he's running. And he's, he's going from tree to tree to tree. I was genuinely terrified for him. And that's because they made this world as real and horrifying as possible. Nobody's safe in this world. There's, there, in another movie, we would say, okay, well, we just saw this kid survive an attack on his family. So he's our protagonist. Ergo, he is safe. No, I never but felt he was safe. we never feel that in this movie. There was, there was no safety. And they, he barely gets back to the vehicle. And Mr. had been already there, holed up. And just like, oh, oh, man. Um, and then there was the hint of right early in the movie where Mister was talking about the berserkers, yeah. uh, the vampires that are very hard to kill because they're so fast and crazed. Crazed, and they have, and 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 in addition to their mad strength, they have an exoskeleton armor that you can't punch their heart out. You have to like do this narrow pin pricking through the back of the skull, and I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> and so there's the scene in the junkyard. And then you see things loping, and I'm like, okay, um, is it the death cult? No. Okay, there's movement. Oh, they're vampires. Oh my god, they're the berserkers. And then the terror. And then they're running by cornfields, and I'm like, nothing ever good came from a cornfield. <laughs> nothing ever good came from the cornfield. Let's go into the cornfield. What are you doing? Oh my god! And just, like, freaking out, and... Uh, 
the psychological despair of everyone, too. And you can totally understand this kid hating vampires and having seen his family killed by them. But there's a scene where there's a dead vampire laying in a pool of water, and the kid's just laying there throwing rocks at the corpse. There's something really fucking dark about that, you know? It's, it's, it's terrifying. Um, the sister character, speaking of spoilers, oh, when yeah. <clears throat> faced with the confrontation of being taking her own life or being eaten by these predators takes her own life. Yeah. Even knowing that's a sin. <laughs> but that's the level of darkness that the world has achieved. Yeah, if she does the last word she says before she pulls the trigger, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. And but that I'm was... not going to stand here and just get eaten. Uh, I'm and not or, do it. or be turned and yeah. turned into one of the monsters. It was heartbreaking. It's yeah. utterly heartbreaking. Uh, just backtracking briefly, um, the part that made me laugh and giggle and shriek probably inappropriately was exactly they're in the paradise and that slow motion scene I described before and 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 he's just meeting the sister character and then they're airlifting vampires in yeah the the vampires to game. rain down on top of the town on top of this town from the death cult because the, we can't have nice things yeah. in this world um that was a huge dick move. I was, I was amazed. I'm like, I, I, I already disliked these people. Now I'm... But it's an interesting trope that once you're aware of, it might actually hurt your, your enjoyment of future films. So I'm going to apologize in advance for that. Mm-hmm. Anytime you're in a horror movie, a post-apocalyptic movie, or a science fiction fantasy movie, where they establish a safe haven... Expect that safe haven to be destroyed. Oh yeah, at some point. Yeah, and so the second we got there, I kind of expected that scene to come, but that's just a that's a symptom of watching thousands of horror. Movies. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> I I knew something was was going to go down. I was just I just thought it was very inventive that they were airlifting vampires in through helicopters. I I, I thought. I don't know if it's right to laugh, but I was giggling. I was I thought it was kind of like Well, points for creativity. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh wow. I, I think the bullet point here is that this is a very strong horror movie. Yes. Uh, and uh, I I endorse it, but I would say go in knowing what you're getting into. This is a hard R horror movie with teeth. And it will chew you up. <laughs> Thank you for having me here, um, Larry. So I know it's arbitrary that I make you rank these, but like I said, it's not about you being right or wrong, although if you'll be right or wrong. <laughs> it's not about that. It's about me sort of getting an idea of your taste. Okay. If we talk about one movie and we agree that we both like it, I haven't learned a lot other than we agree on that one movie, mm-hmm. right? Whereas if I get sort of this sort of scale... If I see another vampire movie, I'll be confident to be able to say, yes, Damien would like this, or mm-hmm. no, this is not in his wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I put the ball in your court once All again. All right, let's, let's explore the dark psyche and the dark shadows where vampires roam in the backworks of Damien's mind because <laughs> they're some of his favorite creatures. Though I would never date one because, no, no they're for killing. <laughs> um, 
Werewolf, maybe, but not a vampire. <laughs> All right, coming in at number six um, as the Night Flyer, I just I give it a horror factor of three, just out of ten. I, I just. Uh, I just felt like uh, it could have been so much more. But again, I didn't have the same history of people right. who really love Stephen King. And again, Stephen King is one of those guys that you just like him or don't like him. And yeah. So that one was six. Um, that was the bottom one. Uh, dude, well, I, I don't really have too much more to say about Fair that. Fair enough. I don't, I don't want... I mean, I could say it felt like some of the characters were chewing the furniture a bit. Right. Or just the set. And uh, I, I just... Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, Stephen King. Sorry that it felt like the director was, like, hedging his cocaine, cocaine fund. Coming in at number five um, was Near Dark. Now, please understand, at the same time, I did rank it five, but I did actually quite enjoy the film. That one had a horror factor of six, and that was really out of ten. That one was scary because that scene in the bar... And just the door locking and it dawning on everyone's faces that they're just about to die. We're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're it, that one was scary, scary. And there was some classic stuff done there that was just, like, amazing. Um, I definitely would rank that one well. But it was, it was five because there were some pretty uh, spectacular ones coming in for me personally. Um, and I'll try and describe why I like them, each of them, so much. Um, moving in at number four was the Dracula. Um, there was just the beautiful sort of sweeping sort of sense of the classics. Um, I thought they paid homage to that story really well, uh, I, I, at least in my opinion. Um, I, I don't know. I, I was in love with sort of just everything. And then the Lucy was a nightmare. That that scene was nightmare juice for children for ages to come. It was beautiful. Um, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm I'm gonna save a little bit more for the top three. The top three, please understand that they're within like point zero one of each other oh, of no. being one because I just I just really liked them all so much and it was painful to have to choose. And um, yet Larry made you choose. And Larry made me choose. That's okay. I, I'm, I'm, kill your babies. <laughs> kill your babies, Damien. It's all right. I will kill my babies. Um, number three was Shadow of the Vampire. Um, Dracula had a horror factor of five, and so did Shadow of the Vampire. Um, again, watching Malkovich, who is an actor I really enjoy, and Willem Dafoe, who is the second scariest man in Hollywood, <laughs> being... Genuinely terrifying. Now I must know who is the first scariest man in Hollywood. Who? Take a guess. Who in your mind would feel the scariest man in Hollywood? Danny Trejo? I have no idea. Christopher Walken. Uh, Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken. In my mind, that's my opinion. Uh, it was when he was in The Prophecy as Gabriel. He sealed that in. He was so... <laughs> terrifying. Um, yeah, this, was, this one was great. Uh, I just... God, it was so much madness and craziness, and and watching uh, them this monster uh, wander around and and basically masquerade as an actor and not really and and just the the whole um, scene where he's gesturing to the female lead. I didn't mention this, and he's like, 
and you can just hear him like chomping at the bit waiting and I was just like oh my god <laughs> again the beautiful slow motion terror of it unfolding and the one beautiful scene where he has his hand over her heart in the shadows and clenches and then she dies I was like okay that's that's classic badness right there holy god number two um, again ugh. The fact that I had to put this at 2 kills me, because it was like .01 was Stakeland. Horror Factor, 8 out of 10. <laughs> Motherfucker, did that thing ride my bones. It was like, we're riding you down, G. We're not giving up until you're done. We're going to wring every last drop of your adrenaline out of you. It was... It was agonizing, it was beautiful, it was heartbreaking, the, the, the sister character who represented Faith. And then right at the end, suddenly when the, the baton was passed and suddenly Mr. vanishes, uh, and you don't know what happened to him, and suddenly his necklace with the skull, the memento more on the end, is given to, the, to, to Martin who had successfully slain a vampire for the first time at the end, and he goes with the girl and uh, I will mention that while they were in the town, there was mention of cannibals in Canada. So it sounds like, it, and it was never mentioned again, so I'm thinking, you know, probably most people wouldn't think of it because they're walking into New Eden. And all I can think of is, good luck with the Wendigos. Yeah, you right. should be okay, yeah. I think. It's happy in that they're still alive when the credits rolled. Yes, <laughs> yes. Know? It's happy because it's a happy moment right at that point. Uh, so Stakeland came in at two. And number one was, and again by point one, it, it just edged it out for me, was let the right one in. Or as I like to call it, don't bully the weird kid when his best friend is a vampire. <laughs> yes. um, that one was, it was so strangely, bizarrely gentle and sweet but it's like from the perspective of two little monsters and you get to step into their skin for a little while. And the thing that absolutely edged it out was that scene right at the end uh, in the pool. Yeah. That was that that slow motion horror just really did it for me. So that was where my rankings fell. Well, you did a pretty good job. Unfortunately, we're not going to match. For a while there, I thought we might go zero for six, but alas, that was not the case either. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I'm going to just put these in the right order here, and then I will talk you through them. For um, sure. These are a fairly strong overall list of movies as far as vampire movies go. Mm -hmm. There will be other vampire episodes, and you're welcome to do another one if you'd like to. Oh, heck yes. Uh, I'd uh, love um, to. It doesn't have to be vampires. You can take oh, it can be there. anything. There's, there's lots to choose from, but... Um, I can be your vampire whore. Yes, whereas zombies have been going through a renaissance in the last 10 years or so, they've become popular. Vampires have sort of been ubiquitous. There seems to always be a couple vampire movies mm -hmm. coming out every year. So mm -hmm. to get six decent ones, I think, is good. I think mm -hmm. in subsequent vampire episodes, there'll be more negative things to say. Mm hmm. So I don't mean to really say that the John Badham 1979 version of Dracula is bad, but I am saying that I'm going to put it at number six on oh, this yeah. list of movies. Um, and again, part of it is that like because I thought it was so amazing when mm -hmm. I was a kid, watching it again now, it's clearly not amazing, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Um, so I have this sort of disparate 
cognitive bias about the movie. Um, I think it works enough. I think it tells the story of the Dracula myth fairly well. Mm -hmm. It's not 100% faithful to the book, but it's faithful enough. They have the artifice of the big climactic battle on the boat and a very dramatic uh, hanging death mm -hmm. in the sunlight for, for Dracula that was much more designed for the cinema than for a book, but it's a movie. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, um, you know, it, more of it works than doesn't, but I felt a level of detachment. So it ended up at number six. Okay. Uh, I put The Night Flyer at number five. Mm -hmm. um, it's, I just wanted to sort of put it out there as a fairly obscure vampire movie that maybe a lot of people don't know about. Mm -hmm. And it is a different take on it. Yeah. And specifically, if you like Stephen King, which Damien doesn't. Sorry, uh, gang. That's okay. But part of the thing that Stephen King does for his loyal readers is see things in it. And they're, they're present in this movie. Mm -hmm. If you're of the Stephen King world, there's, there's a lot of winks and nods for you. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like... If you'd watched the Sex in the City movie, having not seen the Sex in the City TV show, <laughs> right, <laughs> or the Veronica Mars one, my wife went to see the Veronica Mars movie, and she said, uh, "I really liked it, but I'd seen the show. I think if you hadn't seen the show, you'd the, be a little TV left out in the dark." Out. And there may be a percentage of that to the Nightfly. Again, it's not amazing, but it's solid. Mm -hmm. And for like a direct-to-video vampire movie, a lot of people would just not even give it a glance. And I, I think it's worth a look. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fourth position, we have Near Dark. Mm. Um, again, I really like the execution, and I like sort of the psychological take on the vampires. Um, they are still scary, and they're still, you know, mm -hmm. you know, intimidating villains. But there's also something pathetic about them in and this sad. movie. Um, it, it, it's not necessarily that it's that you're sad that they died necessarily no. but uh in a way you know <laughs> it's the end of uh, it's it's the way i feel bad for any animal going extinct even it's if like it, even if it was a vicious shark you know it kind of sucks that there'll be no more of that species of shark anymore tears for the tyrannosaurus rex <laughs> yes yeah there's no more t-rexes um we're going to see a lot of similarities coming in the bottom half of this Oh, list. I see. <laughs> in third position, we have Shadow of the Vampire. And uh, if there's a flaw to the movie, it's like I discussed. I think that it might be directly in our sort of actor-filmmaker wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a little bit of a larger glimpse behind the curtain than maybe the average person. Uh, so they may not get the same level of enjoyment out of it. But I do think that the slow sort of turn from a historical artifact of making of Nosferatu into a genuine, frightening Nosferatu picture uh, works well enough. And when Shrek finally goes apeshit and starts snapping people's necks, uh, you wouldn't have suspected him of being that strong. But yeah. because of the strength of performances and because of the reality of the world they present, you don't question it. <laughs> no. By the time we get to the grand finale, everything's on the table. Oh, so uh, considering the near camp levels of the performance to Willem Dafoe and, and Malkovich, that they still achieve terror sort of speaks to the strength of the movie. Yeah. Um, they were winking just slightly, but they, they didn't wink so much as to take away for the scares. So... Big points. Yes. In second place is Stakeland. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, brutal. Heavy, heavy, heavy. Um, but I think the real genius of it is basically disguising a vampire movie in a zombie context. Um, where I love the zombies. We are horrified by them. I, oh, I, my I, God. I, I'm a big, big zombie guy. And I recognize a lot of the things that you'll see in zombie movies are present in this vampire movie. Mm -hmm. This will appease... 
uh, it will appeal to fans of vampires, but it will also appeal to the big, heavy zombie crowd out there, mm-hmm. too. Um, but it is a capital H horror movie. And we're not used to seeing those. They no. really do punch us in the stomach when we see them nowadays. <laughs> and uh, short of like an ugly torture porn type of movie, this is about as dark as I would want to get for a horror movie. If it gets yeah. any darker than that, it becomes hard to even enjoy it. Yeah. So uh, it's all the way at number two. I think it's a very strong movie, but mm-hmm. I also would warn people about that. Oh, like, Lordy. Um, you said that Let the Right One In won by just like the narrowest of margins. Mm-hmm. I think that, for me, it was obviously and loudly the best of those six movies. Mm-hmm. The, the, just the composition, the sort of strength of the filmmaking and the storytelling, the psychological depth to all of the characters. Like, we sort of put our focus on the kids, which makes sense, but yeah. everybody in that movie is fully realized. And um, it's this kind of uncomfortable piece in that it feels like it's a happy ending until you think about it a little bit. It's almost like one of those pop songs that are really catchy and, uh, and people dance to them at their wedding and then they, they actually one day pay attention to the lyrics Yes, and uh, realize that <laughs> it's a bitter little pill. Yeah. And it is a bitter little pill, but it's a different take on the vampire myths and it's not, you know, sexy teenage girl choosing between vampire and werewolf, you know? No. Um, I understand why, from a financial perspective, they felt that they could re- remake this movie. And I think that Matt Reeves tried like hell to, to give us this uh, as authentic a remake as he could. Mm-hmm. But in the end, it was just unnecessary. Yeah. Let they, the Right One In is probably one of the finest horror movies I've seen of the last 10 years, let alone vampire movies. It is agree with fan-fucking-tastic. It's amazing. <laughs> and uh, I... I that's that's where I am on it. Um, I have good things to say about the rest of the movies, but I think that the right one in might be on another another level. Yeah, no, it was it was amazing. I got that's why I was delighted to see it again. I just was like, wow, so good. So sorry, I have no prize for you today, Damien, but I am thrilled that you did this podcast, and I do hope that you uh, decide to do it again. What? <laughs> I had a great time. We I, we we got half of them the same. Yeah, so that's yeah, pretty yeah, close. Yeah, yeah. It, we did, we did well. I think we're, mm-hmm. we're more or less on the same page. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything you would like to spread the word on onto the people of the internet, uh, the adventures of Damien Bartlett <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the world? Uh, is, can you still see Damon's on YouTube? You absolutely can still see Damon's in YouTube. I'm going to be, in the next couple of weeks, participating in a 48-hour film creating competition. This is probably going to drop in, like, October. So. Okay, all right. Uh, I will have been in a 48-hour <laughs> Uh, film competition um, I'm not sure where you'll be able to see that uh, Damon's is definitely online uh, you can just google it and find it uh, my episode is the second last one the Leviathan episode and uh, yeah I, I'm going to be continuing doing acting and acting coaching and all that jazz yes Damien is a very talented actor performer in Saskatoon Saskatchewan uh Get him some work. Yes, please do. Um, I love doing it. An acting Damien is a happy Damien. <laughs> and so it was that episode 29 of Rankin Review comes to an end. Uh, if you would like to send feedback to Rankin Review and tell Damien and Larry just exactly what you think of them, you can do so at rankinreview at gmail.com. 
Uh, you can also seek us out on Facebook or subscribe to us on iTunes in the podcast feed. And if you're there doing that anyway, if you leave a little review and a positive one, it helps people to discover the show. So please do that if you have a moment. And thank you for listening to Rank and Review. Uh, Damien, is there anything you'd like to say to the kids? Um, make sure you put on your garlic lip, lip balm before sunfall. That's all.